Hi there, a quick note before we begin the episode. Did you know that Atlas Lingue has its own audiobook with exclusive and brand new material? It's called Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life. In this audiobook, we share additional exclusive commentaries on each episode with brand new insights and examples on the subject that we can't stop thinking about, how humans translate everything that comes their way. Also remember, when you buy Ochenta's audiobooks, you're directly supporting our independent audio series productions. So find Atlas Lingue, the layers of language behind everyday life, on Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobooks app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I remember the first time I read the word Latin X. I knew it was a gender neutral term to be used instead of Latino or Latina but I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce it. And more importantly, the language nerd in me kept wondering, why an X? Then I looked into it a little more and started to understand that more than a letter, the X in this context is a symbol. And essentially, it's crossing out the A or the O. And with that, it's sending a statement. I am neither of those. Then I wanted to know how other languages do it, and I found out that Italian does something similar. In phrases such as buongiorno a tutti, with an asterisk instead of tutti or tutte, which is also a statement, like saying good morning everyone of all genders. And in France, people have started to use a neutral pronoun instead of il or elle, where the first letter is a zero with a diagonal line through it and this symbol actually represents zero in mathematics. This also communicates something. Fill it in with whatever you want. And there are a lot of people who complain about this, about how it, quote, goes against grammar rules, or it's destroying language. And to that, I think about the story of the letter ñ in Spanish, about how it was originally just two ends and people gradually started writing them differently. Instead of having the two ends next to each other, they started writing a small n over a larger one, until we reached the modern version of it. And everyone just uses it, and no one complains. So, coming back to Latin X and gender-neutral words, I'm sure something similar is happening in all of these examples. We're seeing the layout of a language necessity to represent and express that the gender binary does not include everyone. Welcome to Atlas Lingue. In this season, we're exploring the subtle, and sometimes not so subtle, ways in which we communicate the broad subjects that define our everyday lives. I'm your host, Luis Lopez, and this is our final episode in our three-part suite about gender. This week, language beyond the binary. 
As with our episodes on masculinity and femininity, this episode does not aim to discuss every aspect of gender and non-binary language as a whole. Rather, it's an exploration of the ways in which language has evolved as non-binary and gender non-conforming people have become more visible in the mainstream. But it'll also serve as a reminder that some gender-neutral language is actually much older than many people think. And even if it is new, does that matter? People always have a lot of feelings about language change. Um, and so one of the things that I like to talk about as a linguist is that, you know, that is a normal part of how language works. We don't talk like we used to talk in the 1800s. This is Archie Crowley, a sociolinguist and PhD candidate in linguistics at the University of South Carolina. My research focuses on ideologies, attitudes, beliefs about language within transgender and non-binary communities. Um, and I am a trans and non-binary person. I use they, them pronouns. Um, and I'm mostly just interested in what people think about how language works and um, how that influences how we use it. Archie is particularly interested in the ways that gender appears in language. Sometimes that's pretty obvious. For example, in languages that have grammatical gender, like romance languages. What's interesting, I think, about grammatical gender is that it's just a way of separating types of nouns into different categories. And so there are some languages that have noun classes that aren't related to gender at all, but just sometimes will separate nouns into like animate versus inanimate. Grammatical gender is usually somewhat random and generally has little to do with our social ideas of gender. For example, the word for car in Spanish, el coche, is masculine, but in French, la voiture, it's feminine. But I think like in languages that don't have this kind of morphological like gender agreement, but for example, English, like English doesn't have gender agreement in the same way that Spanish or French might, but there's a ton of ways that gender gets represented in language that are often still reinforcing this gender binary. And this is arguably where the gendered aspect of language has greater consequences because it's about who gets named and who gets left out or assumed to be a part of the binary. So we often talk about like boys and girls, men and women, ladies and gentlemen, and these kind of ways just reinforce this gender binary. Um, when there are many, many ways that we could just say people, children, hello everyone, esteemed guests, right? So I think there's a lot of like ways that we don't even necessarily think about that, our ideas about what gender is as a binary come out through how we talk about other people. The idea of who gets named and who gets omitted also applies to terms that are meant to be used as gender neutral, but aren't really. Like manpower, man hours, or mankind, for example. But what I think is actually most interesting is that it's often terms that historically have been used to refer to men that then become expanded to refer to all people. And one of the best examples of this is the word guys. So guys historically was used to refer to men and now is off, can be understood as referring to people of different genders, depending on your cultural context. But the, does, the same doesn't happen for words that were initially used to refer to only women. So if you were to refer to a bunch of people of different genders as, hey, ladies, there might be some people who would be really uncomfortable with that. And so you can see that what gets understood as generic isn't separate from these like understandings of people and gender identities, things like that. The use of the masculine as default is particularly common in a lot of professions. 
This can be seen in certain job titles, such as policeman or fireman, which have gradually shifted to more gender-neutral words, like police officer and firefighter. As another example of how gender gets marked in language um, is what we understand as like the default of a certain type, like how the unmarked forms of certain words like waiter, actor, uh, are seen as masculine, whereas the form that's marked once you add a suffix like waitress, actress, then that is understood to refer to women. And so often that's another project of early feminist linguistic work was questioning why the default was always the masculine. Some of these titles have also taken on gender neutral forms, such as server instead of waiter or waitress, or flight attendant instead of stewardess. But it's interesting to notice how prevalent our social assumptions are when it comes to the gender of certain professions. So many people will instinctively picture men when they hear the words doctor or pilot, and women when they hear nurse or secretary. And all of these are, grammatically speaking, gender neutral. In any case, the adoption of most of these examples comes from an effort to acknowledge that men aren't the only ones who hold these titles. And this is a significant step forward in making language more accurately reflect our society. Of course, there are still areas of language where the effort to make non-binary people visible is still very active. Perhaps the most notable example of this is in gender-neutral pronouns. In English, we have seen the increase of the use of singular they to refer to um, people who want to use pronouns that are not he or she. If you've spent any amount of time on the internet, you've likely seen people criticizing or questioning the use of they-them pronouns to refer to a single person. And many of these comments are deliberately meant to mock or attack this, but others attempt to question it by saying that it is supposedly grammatically incorrect. People just think, for example, that they cannot be used to refer to a single person because it has historically been used to refer to multiple people. Never mind the fact that singular they has actually been used and accepted for centuries, at least since the 1300s, and that it's commonly used even when not referring to non-binary people, simply in situations where a person's gender is unknown. For example, in the sentence, someone left their phone in the classroom. But when people argue that it's incorrect to use these pronouns to refer to non-binary people because, quote, that isn't what they're meant to do, Archie refutes this argument by saying that grammar actually changes all the time. And one of their favorite ways to show this is with another pronoun that has changed in the past few centuries, the pronoun you. So in uh, older versions of English, people were expected to use thou to refer to a single person and you to refer to multiple people if they were talking to multiple people. Um, but over time, you shifted and is now what we use to refer to a single other person. This shift started to happen in the 1600s, and there were actually people back then who complained about this change. Archie mentions a writer by the name of Thomas Elwood, who called the use of the pronoun you in singular form as a, quote, corrupt and unsound form of speaking and an evil custom that has greatly debased the spirits and depraved the manners of men. But of course, nowadays we all just use you and get along with our lives, and no one complains about it anymore. And so that is a very normal shift in our pronoun system 
that people think is, you know, correct and normal currently. Um, and likely in the future, singular they will also become normalized in a way that people will feel like that is also correct and normal and that language will continue to change. And that's cool and exciting and we don't have to be scared about it. <laughs> we don't talk like we used to talk in the 1800s and being more inclusive through language and advocating for certain types of language change is important and also very normal. <laughs> in the case of English, the word they was already in use. So it can be argued that it's relatively easy to adopt as a non-binary pronoun, since it's already a word that exists in everyone's vocabulary. The situation is different in languages that don't already have a word like that, such as Spanish, where not only are pronouns gendered, but many nouns are as well. For example, in English, the word citizens is gender neutral, but in Spanish, the plural form is los ciudadanos, which implies a masculine default. And there have been multiple attempts to counter this masculine default. And let's stick to the Spanish words for citizens to illustrate this. A common way to do this is to simply write both the masculine and feminine forms of a noun. For example, ciudadanos y ciudadanas. And in writing, we can see something like ciudadanos slash as, or even an at sign instead of the O or the A. And so it's like, okay, so the first one recognizes that we don't want a default masculine. We want to recognize men and women. That's good. But that, of course, still doesn't solve the issue of including people beyond the masculine and feminine binary. There have been two main ways in which this issue has been approached. One is by changing the O or the A to an E, as in ciudadanes, or by changing it to an X, as in ciudadanex. Though many people will still pronounce this X as an E when saying it out loud. And this applies to the creation of new gender-neutral pronouns, such as ELLE instead of EL or ELLA. And then there was the X, and then there was interesting conversations around that of like, how do we pronounce that? Like, how does it get used outside of written Spanish? And so I think the introduction of the E ending, or the E ending, depending on if you're trying to say that, because E is a different vowel in Spanish, <laughs> but it like is easier to pronounce. And Spanish is not the only language where there are active efforts to make it more gender-inclusive. A particularly interesting example of this happens in Swedish. And for that, we turn to Emma Renström, an associate professor at the University of Kristianstad, Sweden. My background is in social psychology, uh, but I've been interested in sort of gender, language, and cognition for the last 10 years or so. And so I've been studying mainly the Swedish gender-neutral pronoun hen uh, from when the, it was introduced and the debate started and up until now, basically, and we continue to follow what's happening and what's going on with hen and other gender-neutral or non-binary pronouns. The pronoun hen is a gender-neutral form of the singular third person, and it's an alternative to the masculine han and the feminine hon. And what's interesting about this is that in 2015, it was accepted into the new official dictionary of the Swedish language. Yeah, I mean, it was started being used in like the early 2010s, mainly within LGBTQI uh, communities as a non-binary pronoun. Um, but then it was sort of picked up by, by others as well. And it was actually... I wouldn't say launched, but sort of 
when the debate exploded, it was because of a collective action that was done by a feminist uh, scholar, a linguist, and well, the, the, uh, the publishers of a book that was a children's book called uh, Kiwi and the Monster Dog. And Kiwi was the sort of main character, and this child was referred to as Hen throughout the book. When this book was published, there was a campaign to promote the use of the pronoun Hen, which resulted in a massive conversation in Sweden about this pronoun, and about gender-neutral language in general. And I think that this was a very clever move, uh, because, well, first of all, targeting children is like... <laughs> you know, throwing oil on the fire uh, because everybody's so concerned about the children and, you know, we are doing these social experiments with our children, what's going to happen, they grow up confused and they don't know what gender they have and, and things like this. Ah, yes, the classic, can someone think of the children? But Emma says the kids turn out all right. But I think it was very clever to target uh, children with this collective action because all of a sudden, like overnight, everybody in Sweden were familiar with Hen. They knew that it was a non-binary, or at least they knew that it was a sort of gender-neutral pronoun. So basically, this is a similar situation to what Archie said about the pronoun you, although in a much shorter timeline. And this was, of course, very disturbing to a lot of people. Uh, because it does challenge the binary, traditional gender binary. And, I mean, I can to some extent understand this, because for a lot of people, the gender identity is very important. So it's important to be a man or to be a woman. And it's important that when I meet new people, that I know that this is a man or a boy or whatever, because then I know a lot of things about this person. and. Of course, these are just built on stereotypes because we don't know anything about this person, even if we assume that they are a man or a woman or whatever. But, you know, when we start to sort of meddle with these very deeply rooted identities, people get insecure and uncertain, and that's uncomfortable. So people want to go back to what's comfortable. Emma touches on a key point here. Socially, we learn to think of gender as an important factor in a person's identity. We learn to divide the people we interact with into men and women, and when someone challenges that binary, it complicates things. But Emma says this complication doesn't necessarily come from this just being, quote, natural. Rather, it arises from a lack of adequate words to talk about identities beyond the gender binary. There is this uh, hypothesis um, about linguistic relativism that most people have some sort of idea about, like... Uh, the strong version basically says that if there's not a word for something, then we cannot experience it, we cannot perceive it. So if we don't have a word for the color purple, we cannot see it. And now we know that that's not really true. What research does show is that uh, language biases and influences how we perceive things and how we, we see them. And I think that this has been an easy way for people to say that this the identity doesn't exist because there is no word for it, and therefore it doesn't exist. Even if we don't have a word, a pronoun for non-binary identity, we can still talk about it, but it becomes easier when we have a pronoun. Uh, so I think that one important thing about um, 
having an, a non-binary pronoun is that non-binary gender identities are a sort of real thing. <laughs> like that this is something that exists because there is a word. Having a word for something helps make conversations about it a lot easier. And as we've seen, sometimes the backlash against gender-neutral language comes from a belief that it is going against rules and conventions. In the case of the word they in English, for example, the point is rightfully made that the word has been used in the singular form for centuries, and it's not really challenging any grammatical rules. But this doesn't mean that the words that are challenging these rules are any less valid. Here's Archie again. People who point to dictionaries as authoritative sources and saying like, well, this word is in a dictionary, therefore it's like authoritative. And we point to the past and being like, well, this word was used in the past, therefore it's okay. But there's a lot of new words, new ways of talking that are also valid. For example, like, yes, singular they has been used for a long time, but there are also non-binary people who use neo-pronouns, which are also great and cool. And new terminology will evolve. And then like the dictionaries, the like the gatekeepers, the arbiters of this, well, they'll catch up. They'll end up as these words gain use, they'll get put in the dictionaries. And so even if something hasn't existed for a long time, that doesn't mean it's not like important or valid. Now, obviously the gender binary is communicated socially in many more ways than in just words. We see it in places that only have men's and women's public restrooms. We see it in toy stores for children that still heavily emphasize toys for boys and for girls. And of course, we see it in ever more extravagant gender reveal parties. So naturally, there are also many different ways to challenge the gender binary besides our spoken or written language. One example is through art, more specifically through performance art. And for this, we turn to our next guest, Castles. My name is Castles. I use they, them, he, his pronouns. I'm a visual artist. I was trained initially as a painter, but I would say that the germ of most of my work lies in live performance, usually physical, durational, intense live performance. But I also work in a variety of materials and mediums. I also do everything from working with skywriting in the sky to lighting myself on fire to working with ice. I think a lot about issues of equity, of social justice. And I really think of art as a place where we can ideate different strategies that maybe don't exist in, in our current world immediately um, accessible to us. Castles is based in Los Angeles, and most of their art revolves around working with their body, often putting it through intense experiences. This results in an exploration of the body's inherent strength, but also in a questioning of gender norms as they blend traditionally masculine and feminine traits. And one of their works that best embodies this is Cuts, a traditional sculpture. So Cuts is a piece after Eleanor Anton's carving a traditional sculpture, which was made in 1972. And in that work, Anton is responding to the traditional notion of what a sculpture does, like the idea of the genius male that looks at the block of marble and then can envision, you know, the perfect form and then creates it, right? So uh, she, she did this through uh, daily photographs of her body from four anatomical positions as she starved herself in a crash diet over 72 days. Eleanor Anton's original piece meant to explore the social expectations placed on women's bodies. So castles replicated the idea, but in their own way, 
photographing themselves over several weeks, but instead of going on a crash diet, they ate the caloric intake of a 180-pound male athlete and went through an extremely rigorous workout routine. And I was interested in 2011 at this idea of how could I work with the material conditions of my own body to um, play with the construction of gender. And it was very specific that I didn't do, like, I didn't take testosterone because I didn't want it to be a dialogue that was just about, you know, um, going from male to female. I don't think I ever really felt like I was, like, um, embodying traditional forms of masculinity, and that was the point. In fact, uh, the point was to fail and to rupture, right? To flag and then to fail. Um, and by fail, I mean a productive failure. Now, Castles didn't do this carelessly. They're a certified personal trainer, and they worked with a nutritionist. The idea was never to harm their body for shock value, but rather to explore the body's possibilities and defy gendered expectations. I was very much in submission to the process, and it took over my entire life for six months. And it was also very pleasurable to have uh, this incredible strength gain and um, sort of physical prowess, but also to have these moments in, in rupture where you'd walk down the street and like uh, a group of guys would like check out your, your, your chest and start laughing because you knew that they thought you were male and then they realized you had breasts, you know, and they were so like uh, confounded that they, the only answer, the only thing that they could do is just like start laughing hysterically, you know? So soliciting, like your body becomes this uh, container that solicits these very sort of, um, these reactions from people. And so I became the sort of locust of that everywhere I went. My work came out of a place of really wanting to think about the body as both um, material and instrument and think about ways of being in my body uh, without having to necessarily surrender to big pharma or undergo, um, you know, a double mastectomy. Why do we live in a society? For me to go to the beach here in LA, like why do I have to have an operation where I literally slice part of my body off? Why can't I just take my shirt off at the beach? Without, like why will I be arrested? If I, you know, if I claim that I'm male identified, you know, it should be enough. I shouldn't have to have part of my body cut off if I don't want to, right? If I want to, that's a different thing. Gender neutral and non-binary visibility still has a long way to go. And in the case of language in particular, each language has unique obstacles to gender-inclusive communication. English already has a commonly used neutral pronoun that Spanish doesn't. But Spanish grammar, for example, allows speakers to omit pronouns so that there's no need to say el or ella, something that isn't really done in English. And there are different ways of writing and speaking in a gender-neutral way. Some might be softer by sticking with accepted grammatical uses. Others might be more deliberate, like using new pronouns, or, as we saw in the Spanish example, writing an X instead of an O or an A. In many of these cases, the point is to stand out, to make a statement, and to show that people exist outside of the binary. I mean, I think that pronouns in general, in language and in research on like psycholinguistics and, and similar areas, is very much in, um, there's a bright future, I would say. And I think that's very exciting because it also shows that, you know, we um, as humans are sort of ready to embrace that there is something else besides the gender binary. And maybe 
the importance of gender identity can be sort of downplayed. Like you don't really need to know if somebody is a woman or man to know how to interact with them. Like maybe we can can decrease the salience of gender altogether. I think that would be great, and we could try to see each other as as humans or individuals uh, instead of seeing others as whatever their gender is. I'd say that um, you know, non-binary was a word that or a term that only really kind of came to a popular use in, in very recent uh, years. You know, I think when I was even in you know 2011 when I made an early work essentially around this idea, there was there's no term like non-binary. You know, it's if I go to speak at a university now, sometimes half the room is non-binary or or trans-identified, which just blows my mind because. It just was not um, the case at all. Even you know, even three years ago, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, not at all. And so um, I do see an expansion and a sort of popularization of these concepts, which is which is exciting. I would love to see just greater support for um, the different ways that trans and non-binary people are using language. Um, so that people feel like they can accurately represent their experience of gender and language and that they'll be supported in their expressions and that people feel comfortable trying out new things and figuring out what language works best for them. Thank you for listening to Atlas Lingue. If you're new to the series, we invite you to listen to our previous episodes where we dive deep into translation and communication. I'm Luis Lopez, and it has been a pleasure to accompany you on this journey. Special thanks to Archie Crowley, Emma Renstrom, and Castles. Atlas Lingue is an original production by Studio Ochenta. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Sound design and production by Chiara Santella and me, Luis Lopez, with additional production assistance by Linnea Wingerup. Our production coordinator is Catalina Hoyos. For more information on Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta original series and podcast, go to ochentastudio.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Our podcast is available on CastBox, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, it's Luis here, and I want to tell you about a show we've been listening to called The Pulso Podcast. There are a lot of podcasts that cover Latino culture and news, but this is one of the first we've heard that really utilizes the throughline of history to provide more context and nuance to our stories. From the halls of Congress to the stages of Broadway, even the food we consider to be American, Latinos helped build this country, and we're not going anywhere. Yet most podcasts are still lacking Latino representation behind and in front of the mic. 
The Pulsa Podcast is a Latina-hosted, Latina-produced show that explores untold stories and unheard voices shaping the experiences of nuestra gente. They've covered topics from beauty standards and gender equality to mental health and food origins. And did you know that there is an official Spanish version of the Star-Spangled Banner? Or that a team of Mexican lawyers changed the future of segregation laws in the 50s? To hear more, check out the Pulso podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.